Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Okay, so it's all there. So we're in Leviticus 11. Picking up from where we left off in chapter 10. You know, we had people who weren't here for chapter 10. So just for the sense of context, we were talking about priests getting anointed or consecrated. And really just in the last chapter, just how important it is to God when people are about to enter the ministry, that there's ceremony, there's process around that, and it's part of the Levitical book. So Leviticus, the book of the Levites, is kind of other people say this is a book of worship, or how do we worship God? How does God want us to behave in order to honor him? Zach's checking to see that the mic is on, and then everybody's yelling at me because I forget it every week. But yes, the blue light's on, the recorder is going, mic is there. I think I'm being recorded. Um, so the, the importance of the consecration is so important that the very first thing that happens is two of the main players, Nadab and Abihu, get killed by God because they start making up their own rules and doing it their own way. And God shows the seriousness that he has around that. And really just this idea that the whole process is so that we can abide with God. And of course, because I've been lately going to 1 John a lot, uh, 1 John 2, verse 27, it's the same thing in the New Testament. The anointing that you received from him abides in you. And John's interpreting this Leviticus chapter 10 the same way we are. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, <laughs> but you're here being taught. But as his anointing teaches you about everything it, and is true, and is no lie, just as it's been taught to you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence not to shrink from him or have shame at his coming. The whole point of Leviticus is how we can abide with God. And I'm reviewing that <clears throat> in part because being saved by God is not a ceremony and it's not a special prayer. It's this process of starting a relationship with God and sustaining that relationship with God and trusting that God knows your heart to pursue him and he'll honor that and save you in the end. That's salvation, right? To abide in God is what John says. So even though Nadab and Abihu were anointed, they clearly were not saved and that lesson gets taught right up front, right? And I'm saying all this because if you're glancing at this next chapter today, we're going to talk about kosher food. Um, and so, and I'm building this point because it's easier to make in the last chapter. And remember, 10 goes into 11. So you have this idea of consecration, the starting of the ministry. Um, you got Eleazar and Ithamar, that next story in chapter 10, or the last story in chapter 10, who did something outside of the line of it, but God had mercy on them because their hearts were in the right place. So you got two people who get killed by God. They're not saved even though they were anointed, and two other people that were anointed, and they were saved by God. And it's like God's trying to show us right off the bat, it's not the ceremony of anointing that saves you or not. It's your heart that saves you. And in the New Testament, we just see again and again and again, that's the interpretation of all the New Testament writers, is that it's what's in your heart that matters, not anything else. So all Christians, anyone who claims Jesus Christ, has been anointed. But it doesn't mean that they're saved. And that's a real danger that we have in that we should be working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We should be going through our life trying to seek God every day because it's not necessarily a guaranteed, guaranteed thing. So what we have in chapter 11 then is a really unique and kind of curious and weird chapter where we're going to decide what to eat and what not to eat. And I'm going to break this down in a couple different ways. We'll do chapter 12 tonight too, you know, just so we can get in childbirth on the same night as we get in kosher foods. Um, kosher foods, remember, eating is already a Hebrew tradition. So back in Genesis 7 and 8, we saw that there were things that were clean. We saw that things that were unclean, according to Noah. But now we get a codified system of this. And I'm going to bring it in a couple ways. I'm going to go through the food type. I'm going to give some of the natural health benefits. But that logic of all of this is this great medical health benefit thing. It really breaks down quick. 
because there's no health negative to eating camels, but you're not supposed to eat camels. So there's a, I'll give you some of those things because they're interesting, but there's also a spiritual lesson to be learned here. And I think one of the big reasons why God says, I'm going to consecrate you into the ministry and then I'm going to show you how to eat is because no matter where Jewish people go in the world, they bring kosher eating food styles with them. And they bring this constant attention to what's clean and what's unclean and how they prepare their food, how they eat their food, which means they're doing it three times a day at the very least, and they're attending to cleanliness in their life all the time. And the spiritual lesson there, I hope, is really clear. We, too, should be attending to cleanliness all the time. And then at the end of verse 11, I'll go through some of the New Testament shifts on this, because the way this gets interpreted by the Jewish people is actual eating of kosher foods, but Jesus translates that a little differently, right? So I'll show you those things. So verse 1. Now, starting a new section with the word now, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the children of Israel, saying, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. God's going to draw this clear line between kosher and non-kosher, um, though that word doesn't get used here. The word that gets used is clean and unclean, clean and unclean foods. Uh, so in general, the pure people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the anointed should be clean and all these dietary things can be broken down into the thing that we avoid death and filth and we eat things that are alive. And that's kind of if the crude summary of kosherness. Verse 3. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those who chew the cud or those who have cloven hooves, the camel, because it chews the cud, but it does not have cloven hooves. They're only partially cloven, right? It is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, go look that up. I, I was going to, and then I thought, this, it's just too far. Because it chews the cud, but it does not have cloven hooves, that's unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet it doesn't chew the cud, it's unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. Do you see the pattern of un the clean, unclean is an important concept here? I take away a couple things. First of all, God does care about the details. And he gives lots of detail here. And we saw that with the building of the tabernacle, right? So God cares about the details and he's going to spend some time on it. So are we. Um, so for the animals, if you, if you caught this, the hoof has to be split entirely, which means when you look at the hoof, it can't be a solid piece. Or like a camel, it's partially cut, but the back is connected. It has to be cut all the way through. So no horses, no camels. There has to be a complete thing. So that means no paws, right? So pawed animals are safe. Chewing the cud, I'm guessing most of you know this. I had to look it up. Chewing the cud is the process of eating living things, plants. And in order to break them down, you chew them, you eat them, but they stay in your esophagus or in a cow, it's their first stomach. And then it comes back up after it's been digested a little bit and they keep chewing it. It's like a piece of gum. You just keep chewing on this thing and soaking it in and what actually goes down for the most part are the juices. And then eventually they swallow it and it goes through the digestive system. So this is mostly then herbivores or what they would call ruminant animals. And the reason for the word ruminant is chewing the cud is actually the root word is to ruminate or to, to process something for a long amount of time. It's the same root word that we use for meditate, to think about something and to meditate on something. So to eat or to regurgitate, those gases get to work on things. The body has a chance to digest it. They get to kind of absorb it over a long period of time. And what happens is you get almost all the vitamins and proteins out of that thing that you ate. So it's a really healthy way to eat. Not that we should be practicing it, it's just we don't have that digestive system. I wish, if I knew Catherine was coming, I would have said, give us a rundown on the biology of this process, which you probably do better than I can. But maybe she can just add that and send the, send the voice clip, and we can put that, we can insert that into the podcast. Every part of the world has this kind of animal, as a native herd animal in that part of the world. And you think about God's vision for the nation of Israel and the Hebrews to be all over the planet and be a light to the world. No matter where they go in the world, there's going to be a ready food source that they can eat. 
Because if the rules get too constringent, you go to Alaska and there's nothing to eat. But lo, you go to Alaska and there's herds of caribou that you can eat, right? And you can go to uh, Africa and there are herds of giraffe that are edible, right? So they're everywhere in the world. Every major climate type, every biome has this kind of animal that you can eat. They just look different, right? They're moose over here, they're oxen over here, they're bison, they're deer. Um, but the idea that you can go anywhere on this planet and have meat to eat that would be kosher is kind of cool. I thought that was neat. But you can't eat cats. You can't eat dogs. You can't eat pigs. You can't eat reptiles, frogs, horses, anything like that. And we've eliminated those. And in that, you have to make a decision before you eat. When you go to a company, when you visit someone's house and there's a piece of meat on the plate in front of you, you have to ask, where is this meat and where did it come from? If I'm going to put something into my system, I want to know if it's good for me or not, right? And so that question becomes part of just how they live. Because I'm going to come back to this point later, I want to build it right now. The idea of clean or unclean notice as we go through here is not necessarily connected to sin. And that's going to be important in this chapter and the next chapter. At this point in Leviticus, unclean and clean just means you take some time away from your people, right? You get a little, a little alone time is what it means to be unclean. And then when you're ready to come back into the fold and come back into temper ceremonies and stuff like that, you can. For instance, lions are not inherently sinful, but they're not for food either. So for eating, it says they're not to be eaten, yet Jesus uses the lion of Judah to represent and signify himself. So he's not picking a sinful animal. He's just picking an animal that's not okay to eat, right? It has a different purpose. This takes all predator animals and makes them not edible. So anything that kills to eat is not part of your food source if you're kosher. And that's kind of interesting. So we're going to see a pattern where we stay away from death and we stay away from decay. So any animal that eats dead things, we don't eat in the kosher world. So we eat mostly plant eaters. Spiritually speaking, this is a really simplified code um, where you have to use judgment, and it's a representative, a representative system of holiness. Right? This represents a holy lifestyle when you eat this way. In the same way that the priesthood and the sacrifices were representative systems of atonement. Both the, the, the sacrificial system and the eating system are going to get replaced in the New Testament by real systems of atonement, Jesus Christ, and real systems of walking with God. So one way to look at this is that, spiritually speaking, the word divided or cloven means to be split, divided, or parted, right? And a spiritual take on this is we should be walking with our mind divided between things of the world and things of heaven. And anything that doesn't walk that way, we should be walking in that understanding. And we should be chewing on the word of God. And there's kind of this idea that there's a spiritual take on this. And I'm getting that from commentators, not necessarily from other places in the Bible. But it's interesting that we should walk in the way of God, and we should we could, should live or we should meditate on the word of God in the same way that these animals should be walking with that definition of a split. They should be walking split between heaven and earth, and they should be chewing on healthy and nutritious things. It's just a thought. Chewing the cud, another, again, if you look at the Hebrew on that, um, to chew a law is to ascend. So again, we get that concept of going up. And the cud or the giraffe is to scrape the throat, or again, that word ruminate. So you literally get to ascend your ruminations, is chewing the cud. And animals that do that, it's not hard to see the connection where the rabbinical system sees that as an image for walking um, with the word as part of what you're always processing. So you consume these con things continually. If you understand those ideas in those Hebrew words, then it's not hard to understand when Joshua, who is the second generation under this system, says, the book of the law shall not depart out of my mouth. That's what chewing the cud is. The food does not come out of your mouth. It stays in your mouth. So it's not really throwing up. It's ruminating. Right? But thou shalt meditate, and he uses the same word, therein day and night. Thou, that, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written wherein. So Joshua makes that connection really early. And even David says, but my delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law I do meditate on it day and night. I ruminate on that day and night all the time. So this image of, the spiritual image of walking separated and meditating on the word both, and you can't do one or the other. You can't walk separated and not soak in God's word. That doesn't do anything for you. You can soak in God's word and still live a lifestyle that's 
you know, completely connected to the world, and you, that also doesn't do anything. It has to be both, and that's kind of the rule that we get. So you see how that kind of works? I'll go faster through the next ones. Unclean, tame, means to be polluted, fouled, defiled. Later on in the, in the Old Testament, we'll see that converge with sinfulness. But at this point, it's just not converged. It's the Pharisees and the tradition and the human, the human influence that will conflate it to the point where Pharisees see people with leprosy as sinners themselves. They have leprosy because they're sinners, but it's not what Leviticus says. It's a misunderstanding or it's a conflation of those two terms, right? So essentially what unclean means is yuck. Don't touch that. It doesn't mean you're going to burn in hell. It just means yuck. That's gross. Don't eat that. And I thought of those little charts. Have you ever seen those things where it's like, did it fall on the floor? And then you say yes or no. And then it says, are you a puma? And then you say yes or no. And if you are a puma, you can eat it. And if you're not a puma, you can't. And you read this chapter, and it kind of feels like one of those things. Yes, you can eat it. No, you can't. Are you a puma? Yes, eat it. But anyways, I'll move on. But the only person who's like chuckling at that is you, Grant. Like You and I are the only ones that are like, that's really funny. I just think there would be a cool kosher chart to be made somewhere where can you eat it, can you not eat it? Um, and in that thing, you would say, yuck, don't eat it. It's not like sinful, don't eat that. It's, it's sinful to eat a lion. It's just like, yuck, don't eat a lion. They eat dead things, and they cover their face in nastiness, and no, don't eat those. This will set apart the Jewish people for all of human history from this point forward. Their eating habits distinguish them as a people, and we'll get into that. Verse 9 these you may eat of all that are in the water, whatever's in the water that has fin and scales, whether in the seas or the rivers, that you may eat, but all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales and all that move in the water or every, any living thing that's in the water, they're an abomination to you. Abomination is slightly worse than unclean, like really nasty, really don't eat eels. That's gross, right? Verse 11, they shall be an abomination to you, you shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever's in the water does not have thinner scales, that shall be an abomination to you. Seas, rivers, waters, that covers all water life forms. There's no Bubba Grumps. You can't eat shrimp. There's no crab, no crab bakes, no octopus, no calamari. All those things kind of go out. They're not, they're not kosher, in part because all of these things that don't have fins and scales become bottom feeders. So this is a really so there's millions of life forms in the if you take all freshwater and saltwater you're talking millions of things instead of giving a very large book telling us what each one of those things which you can eat it or not eat it gives you a really simple rule fins and scales you can eat it so no matter where they go in the world they can just look at the animal and say are there fins are there scales we can eat it super simplified code it gets I say simplified because when you get into rabbinical texts it gets way more complex because they try to find ways where they can eat some of the things they want to eat but they don't. So is our shrimp bad inherently? No. But to have a clear, simplified rule to avoid tons of poisonous things that are in the water and tons of things that are just nasty and to avoid bottom feeders. A lot of the things without fins live at the bottom where all the sediment goes. And the sediment is essentially like decaying plants and, and fishy feces. And you don't want to eat things that live in that filth. So you eat the things that are up eating fresh things. Fins and scales mean they're eating other little like minnows which means they're eating things fully alive. Unlike land animals where they kill it first and then they eat dead things, fish eat things full on alive just like caribou eat live grass. So again, you, you have se segregated out everything that eats living things and things that don't live in filth. So it's super simple. Spiritually, don't partake of things at the bottom of human existence. Don't deal with things that live in filth and because it's not holy. Next, we get to birds. All right, this is very important. And these you should regard as an abomination among the birds, that they shall not be eaten. They're an abomination. Note that with sea life, we got like a really clear, simple rule, fins and scales. But with bird life, we actually get names. You can't eat the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon after its kind, the raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl, and the white owl, and the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe 
and the bat because bats are nasty, right? Don't eat any of those. Can you eat bats? No. Gross and coronavirus. Here we get names of things. There's no outward characteristic of the bird world of what we can look at and see and make a nice simple rule for ourselves, but there are some commonalities. We've eliminated all the birds that are predators and all the birds that are scavengers, all the birds that eat dead things and all the birds that eat really dead things, right? So what's left is birds that eat living things. They eat seeds and they eat plants and they eat other kinds of things. They eat little wormies alive, right? Just like fish eat live minnows, so they eat things when they're living. Um, as an aside, we avoid a ton of diseases here too, and we could get into a lot of that, but when you reduce the bird kingdom to down to what they've had, the, there's a practical benefit of avoiding a ton of diseases. The phrase, after its kind, we saw a lot of that with uh, in Genesis, in both the creation accounts and with Noah. So it's not exclusive of things, but it actually includes a whole category of birds when you see that. We avoid the murderers. We avoid things that have to do with death. Verse 20, we get to bugs, because there are bugs we can eat. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet on which to leap on the earth. These you can eat. The locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. Any scientist, any elementary school science student would know there's something wrong with these verses. This is a massive error in the Bible. It says four feet, and we all know insects have six feet. Some, of, some things that crawl upon the earth even have eight feet. Some things that crawl upon the earth have lots and lots of feet, the little centipede things. So what's wrong here, and why can't we eat those things? Because that's important too. Um, first of all, it's not necessarily an error to say four feet, because if you have six feet, it does mean that you have four feet. It does exclude things with three feet and two feet and zero feet, right? Like those things we can't eat because they don't have four feet. So to say insects that have four feet does not exclude insects with six feet. Does this make sense? Also, if you look carefully at like flies, a lot of times they'll land on four feet and use their front two feet to like handle things and reach into dead stuff and decaying stuff and start to use those more like forearms. So it's not technically wrong to say bugs with four feet, especially if you're trying to give categories for people and eliminate things. Um, all fours, the other thing is people will take these verses and go actually rabah um, which mean is the all fours piece, doesn't actually, it's not a particular count. It's not the number four. It means to crawl about, and it, it, it's implied that you're crawling about on all fours, right? So rabah is something that means to be squared down or to be on your hands and knees. Um, so the number four, if you look at the Hebrew, isn't necessarily in those verses. But we can't eat larvae, and we can't eat worms. I'm really grateful for this. We can't eat bugs, and it looks like they just, essentially they give different types of locusts, four different kinds of locusts. There's locusts with little things on their heads, which is the second type. Mine was interpreted as destroying locusts. They're called destroying locusts because they eat living things. Locusts will come in and they'll eat all your crops, which for humans we hate locusts because they eat all our crops, but they're not eating dead stuff. That's part of what, again, we've separated them out, just like with the birds, just like with the fishes. They eat living things. And they show up later in the Bible. <coughs> John the Baptist, if you remember, <coughs> survives on honey and locusts. And it's kind of a distinction of some people that they're trying to be holy is that they go to this code in, in Leviticus and they eat the grossest thing that's still kosher, right? And they survive on locusts just to show that you can because God was right, right? So those are the hardcore people and I'm not one of those people. I don't think I could live on locusts. But if I had to, I would know that I was still kosher, right? And there's plenty of these bugs out there. You can usually find them. What this does is not so much because there were lots of people that wanted to eat flies, but what it does do is if you're not supposed to eat those kinds of animals, it makes it so that you care about the preparation of your food intensely. Because how many times have you bitten into an apple and there's worms in it, Grant? When that happens, it's gross, but you have just become unclean because you just chewed on something that has been rotting and decaying. 
cabbage are notorious for this. They'll get larva in them, right? So for kosher food preparation with vegetables and fruits, you got to be really careful to wash them and get all the bugs off them so that you've cleaned those things and that they're now kosher and you can eat them. You can pickle things because bugs don't like to be in pickles. Thus, we get kosher pickles, right? So you can treat vegetables in such a way that bugs don't want them anymore. And then they become, they can stay kosher and they can be preserved. But a lot of times in the ancient world, you tried to pre preserve fruits and vegetables and humans would like desperately keep eating them well past their ripe stage, right? And if you think about bananas getting nasty, there's a tolerance level for us, but imagine that you're really hungry and food's not as plentiful. You'll start keep eating those things past when they're good. So what this rule does in these verses is it creates an entire nation of people that throw out the rotten food because it's decaying and it's dead and you don't eat those things. So the abomination, shakets, is detestable, filthy, idolatry, usually associated with idolatry. So when it says an abomination, there's almost a religious implication to that. But again, it's not sin. They have a word for that. But Egyptian scarabs, if you think of like who their neighbors were, the Egyptians really idolized scarabs, which were a bug that are now unclean and not kosher. So some of this is separating them from Egypt a little bit too. Um, one of their other neighbors, by the way, uh, the city of Ekron, to where they're going to go in the Holy Land in Philistine, their primary god was Baal Zebub, which was the lord of the flies. So they'd actually put rotten things out to attract flies in the temples of Baal Zebub. And it was one of those things where now here we're saying that's not okay. Those things aren't kosher. You don't want them around. So God is in some ways separating his people. Anyone who says they love Adonai, Elohim, you're going to be clean. And you're going to separate yourself from this nastiness around you. And you're going to do it with bugs, right? Isaac and Jacob. Um, I'll skip that point. Next, verses 24 through 38, we're going to deal with carcasses, dead things. This is a principle of contamination. So not only is it what you eat and what you don't eat, but there's dead stuff that can contaminate otherwise kosher things. Thus, we have kosher kitchens and we have kosher food storage and everything else. So um, we're going to avoid handling things that have been touching carcasses. This is good. You avoid salmonella when that happens, right? So verse 24, by these things you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them, they shall be unclean till evening. Again, there's no sacrifice needed for atonement, so it's not sin. You're just unclean till evening. If you touch something dead, you get to stay outside the house for a while. My parents used to do this when I played in the woods and in the forest. I had to stay outside the house until I was hosed off because there was so much mud and filth and dirt all over me that they didn't want me to come in the house. Same principle. If you're out touching a dead animal, you can stay outside the house till evening, and you don't have to bring that stank into, into the house for a while. Whoever carries part of the carcass, any of them, shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. Same concept. You're dirty, you're nasty, stay out of here. Um, handling dead things. Today's instructions. If you see a dead or sick bird, this is 2016, health instructions. The feeders should be removed for two weeks. This is in, if you have a bird feeder in your backyard, if there's a dead bird. Wear disposable gloves to remove and clean it outdoors in a bucket rather than in your kitchen sink. You keep it outside. The feeder should be thoroughly dried before refilling the feeder with seed. Same concept, right? So this isn't weird, abstract stuff. These are actually things culturally that we've largely adopted, right? If you see something dead in the bird feeder, you clean the bird feeder and you're dirty. So don't communicate with unclean stuff. There's a, there's a spiritual concept here too in that if you put a little strychnine in your water, the whole glass of water is contaminated. You don't drink it. It doesn't work the other way around. I can't put a drop of water into a bottle of strychnine and expect that the strychnine will be purified by it. God can purify things, but in this world, sin corrupts holiness. It doesn't work the other way. And there's a basic spiritual concept here to what we're doing. Verse 26, the carcass of any animal which divides the foot but is not cloven-hooved or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. And whoever goes on its paws, that's shadow, among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, those are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean till evening. Whoever carries any carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. It's unclean to you. So... The rule is that we don't touch dead things. We got that, right? 
We don't carry dead things without washing our clothes and staying outside the house for a while. The touch of death is going to be a struggle to humanity through all history. We're all touched by death. We don't eat it, but it, it can touch our lives and it can contaminate us too. And, uh, and in that sense, we have this kind of image of, well, we don't associate with dead things. Verse 29. These also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth. The mole, the mouse, the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean till evening. It's interesting that we specifically list some animals, but they don't mention the snake. They just define snakes by creeping things that creep on the earth. But they don't even name it. They don't give, that, they don't give it a word in here. Uh, you take all reptile life out of your diet and you eliminate another whole batch of, of diseases and things that can happen, especially handling them. A lot of diseases on reptiles are actually on their skin uh, and can be carried that way. Armadillos, similarly, can carry thing, nasty things um, that you don't want. So you're eliminating in this, these verses, you're getting rid of a lot of plague carriers. Um, and if in, in case we miss it in 32, we're going to help the Jewish people avoid almost every major plague to hit the planet Earth from the time of this writing to today. And we get in the next couple verses. Anything which falls, anything on which of them falls, when they are dead, shall be unclean. If you open up your whole barrel of grain that you've saved from your crops and there's a dead mouse in there, the whole barrel is unclean. You don't eat it. You go to your, your water storage cistern behind your house and there's a dead chameleon in there, you dump all the water and clean out the tank. You don't drink it, right? So you can see where this helps them avoid a lot of plagues, right? Especially in city areas is because they're constantly con concerned with where did that water come from? Is it a clean source? And can we drink it, right? Uh, whether it is any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever the item is in which any work is done, it must be put in water and it shall be unclean till evening and then it shall be clean. You're going to wash thoroughly anything that touches dead stuff. Assume that it's unclean at that point. Moses had no idea scientifically how diseases got transferred, how plagues worked, how any of that worked. But this very simple policy, you find something dead in your stuff, doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter what the container is, it's unclean, you're not going to eat it, starts to do this. In fact, historically... Because Jews avoid the plagues in almost every area of the world, they start getting blamed for causing the plagues. Because here's a group of people that weren't affected by the Black Plague. Well, all across Europe, they start blaming Jews for having spread the Black Plague, right? So not only is God's people, are they separated and are they holy, but they also now take false accusations because of their separation and holiness. And that's going to happen to God's people all the time. You serve God, you do it with your whole heart, people are going to get upset with you. They're going to make stuff up. The kosher diet, what's interesting about all this, has seen a huge resurgence in the last 20 years. Only, according to market analysis, only 8% of people who eat kosher today are actually religious Jews. 20% of the people who eat kosher would call themselves Jewish. The other 80% are Gentile, non-Jewish people that eat kosher because it's healthy. Or they believe it is. There's all sorts of diets out there, and kosher is just an old one, so they do that. So, verse 33... Any earthen vessel on which any of them falls, you shall break. Don't keep using it if it's earthen. If it's metal or bronze, you can purify it and clean it. But if it's earthen, it'll still contain those viruses later on. So just break it. It's done. Don't use it. Whatever's in it shall be unclean. In such a vessel, any edible food on which the water falls becomes unclean. Any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean. And anything on which a part of any such carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether it's an oven or a cooking stove, it's broken down, they're unclean, they'll should be unclean for you. If you find a dead raccoon in your stove, you break the stove down and you get a new stove. You don't eat or you don't cook things in that stove anymore. Think of that. Like, there's a natural benefit there. Even, even inanimate things, which would be neutral, become unclean when they touch this stuff. So there's a cost in, in the unclean in that it hurts everything it touches. Nevertheless, verse 36, a spring or a cistern where there's plenty of water, like you have a river in your backyard, you find something dead in your river, but there's this constant flow of new water filling it up, that 
shall be clean, but whatever touches any such car carcass becomes unclean. If any part of such carcass falls on any planting seed, which is to be sown, it can remain clean. So you can still plant your corn crops, even if you found a mouse in your, your seed storage. Right? Make sense? You just don't eat the corn. Right? So there you go. Um, it's interesting when you, um, this idea, and you think what, what might be the spiritual implication of that is that this living water can't be corrupted. So there are things that can't be touched by death and destruction and decay. Rivers, springs, these kind of flowing water systems. If it's living water, it doesn't get corrupted. And that's kind of interesting, right? James 4.8 says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Live divided, right? Chew the cud. Stay away from death and destruction. Stay, stay away from unclean things. They're going to corrupt you. Um, and draw close to God where there's living water where you can be refreshed, renewed, and made clean. Verse 38. But if water is put on the seed, and if any part of such carcass falls on it becomes unclean to you, and if any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean till evening. He who eats its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. Also, he who carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It should not be eaten. Does it creep on the earth? Don't eat it. <laughs> Don't eat roadkill. You wonder, like, what the ancient world was like when you had to make this rule. Like, you go along, the and it's spring right now, so we see lots of dead deer on the side of the road. And people would look at that dead deer and go, I can make it good. Like, we can cook it and eat it. And you think, oh, that's just horrible. But the Jewish people said, no, you don't get to eat roadkill. Whatever crawls on its bed, whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, don't, these you shall not eat. Don't eat these things. For they're an abomination. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them. <coughs> lest you be defiled by them. It is well thought that verse 33 is a direct reference to snake rituals that are in pagan religions around them at the time. Especially if you go east from Mount Sinai and you go into like Persia and Babylon, uh, there were a lot of rituals with spiders and snakes where people would let them crawl all over them. And there's kind of a resurgence of that in the kind of pop culture right now. Is that It's kind of hip and cool or dark and gothic to have snakes crawling all over you and have weird creepy things in your house. Um, but according to rabbinical practice, that makes you unclean. Don't do that stuff. It's nasty and it's gross. So God's saying, don't be nasty, right? This is where I started thinking of the chart. For I'm the Lord, and then he gives us a reason, verse 44, which is wonderful. Why do we do all this? For I'm the Lord your God. I think that's great. That sentence is, why do you follow all the rules I gave you? Because I'm your God. If I'm your God, do it my way. If I'm your God, don't play with snakes. If I'm your God, don't eat camels. Right? It's just that simple. And we need, as humans, lots more reasons why to do things. But God doesn't give more reasons. The first reason here is, I'm your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, which we just did in the last chapter, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. No medical reasons. The justification here is entirely the justification of a father to his children or a mother to her children, right? You're going to do it because I said so. Have you ever had parents that say that? Grant does. Do it because I said so. And because you love me is the next thing we're going to get, right? Um, God assumes the right to speak into our lives because we're there. So why do you do this? Because Yahweh is God. That's why you do this stuff. Because he's your God and he gives these reasons. Consecration here gets connected in after and right before this in chapter 10, consecration. It's the same topic. You can be consecrated and anointed but there's a walk that you need to walk. You need to walk divided between the world and godly things. You need to make distinctions and make judgments. That's the consecrated life. So consecration is one thing. The walk is the other thing, right? Walk divided, chew the cud, right? So now we are talking spiritual, even in this chapter, verse 45. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. So now it's not just because I am. It's because I'm the one who saved you. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. I want you to live a certain way. Not just be anointed and think that you're good, but to live a certain way. 
Verse 46, this is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animals, the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So we get a summary of what we just went through, right? A real quick summary. And the reason here given in verse 47 is the purpose of all this is to practice discernment, to think, right, before you do things. And prior to a Holy Spirit descending on God, descending on God's people, there's a discernment practice that God just says, here's how I want you to live, and he just gives them something really there, really clear. There's an assumption of freedom in this, and I think this is tricky because you talk to people that aren't in this, that don't want to follow God, and they see this as a bunch of ridiculous rules. And first of all, they're not ridiculous because in sum total, they're extremely healthy. They're not ridiculous because God said to do them, and we have freedom to do them or not do them, and that's assumed in these last verses. He, God's making an argument to do them because he's God, because he saved you, and because you want to be holy because he's holy. If you're my children, don't you want to be more like me? right? So if you want to be more like me, here's how you do it. But there's an assumption here that you have the freedom to choose that or not choose that. There's a choice to be made, an opportunity to follow the rule out of love, not a command to necessarily do it or else. So they get set apart. I want to remind you that it's this set of rules, which seem kind of ridiculous, that create the story of Daniel. Remember in Babylon, he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we cannot eat those things because they're not kosher. And I didn't get them from the kosher. They don't have a kosher seal on them, so we can't eat those. No matter where Jewish people are at in the world, this is a chance to instantly evangelize and instantly decide to declare who they are based on what they eat. Right? So they're able to do that, and they create one of the coolest stories in the Bible. It allows Jewish people to represent wherever they go on the planet, and that's pretty cool. So basically, let's sum it all up. No predators, no scavengers, no poisonous things, and you have particular needs to keep your kitchen clean, and that's it. Rabbinical systems will add hundreds of rules on top of this, but this chapter is really simple, really direct, and it creates a nice, easy thing that kids can memorize. Still, this becomes a major conference. You can see where this gets to be a big deal in the New Testament, right? Okay, so we're followers of Christ, and food gets to, and whether or not people have to eat kosher, it's a huge New Testament topic. I'm going to dig into it, but I chopped half of my references down because I realized it's not that interesting, Sean. But I think it's important for us to at least tap into this conversation a little bit. It starts with Jesus saying something about food. Matthew 15, 11. Jesus called the multitude to himself and he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. Then his disciples came to him and said, Don't you know the Pharisees? were offended when they heard you say that because the Pharisees are running around making sure everybody's eating kosher, right? That's their job. And then Jesus says, ah, it's not what you eat. What you eat doesn't matter that much, right? It's what you say, what you do, what's in your heart. So they're super offended by this. Um, and it's part of what gets them kind of anti-Jesus, right? In the book of Acts, they still are debating this even after Jesus has left, right? So Acts 10, 14 is a really popular reference to this. Uh, and it's Peter's dream where all the four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air, right? They're referencing uh, Leviticus 11 here. And a voice came to him and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Kill and eat. Whoa, wait a second. Peter said, no, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or, and he's citing Leviticus 11, or unclean. Peter, the fisherman, is super proud that he's only eating clean things. In fact, when the fishermen pull up the nets, they instantly start sorting the clean from the unclean, and they throw the octopus back and the shrimp and the barnacles and the dolphins. They don't eat those things, right? Um, and a voice said to him a second time, what God has cleaned, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up again into heaven. Okay, so I think that's a bad reference because though it has food here, it's clear from the context of that story, God's talking about Peter talking to Gentiles. If I've, if I've cleansed the Gentiles, you need to go out and preach to them because I've called you to do it, right? And God's using something that's near and dear to Peter's heart, food, to get that point across, right? It's not really about food. What's a lot better reference is if you go five chapters forward in Acts 15, verse 19, they actually come to a conclusion as a council in Jerusalem that this food issue, here's how we're going to handle it. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what's been strangled and from blood. Do you see that summary, how tight that is? It's almost like they came to this Bible study, right? It really comes down to don't eat dead things. Don't eat strangled things. We're not going to eat corpses or things that still have the blood in them. Um, and then they reference sexual immorality and polluted by idols, which is what we had hints of with the creeping things. They interpreted it the same way. This is about not being Babylonian, not being Assyrian, not being a Hittite, not being a Canaanite, not being an Egyptian. We're not those people. And we don't associate and affiliate with those things. So when a Roman citizen comes, some of those Roman gods had those kinds of pagan practices in their temples. And basically said, if you're going to be a child of God, you're going to not do that Roman stuff anymore, but you're going to eat basically, um, and you're going to avoid idol and, and those kinds of things. Food that's coming out of those practices. For every creature of God is good, and nothing's to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul argues then that prayer sanctifies our food. And thus we get this tradition in the Christian world that before we eat a meal, we pray. What's weird is we've started to pray more abstractly or esoterically instead of directly praying that the food on the table will be purified before God's hand, which is where it came from in Timothy. When you pray before a meal, you're supposed to pray that that stuff doesn't kill you. Um, another argument for some of these, why did this shift happen at this point in history? And part of it is what made the Roman Empire powerful is the Romans adopted a lot of these clean practices in their food eating. So the Roman population started to grow faster than other populations, just like the Jewish population did. In fact, the Romans copying some of the kosher practices is what made the, made the cooking practices better. So if they're boiling their water before they drink it and they're cooking their meat before they eat it, they eliminate 90% of the diseases that we just went through in this kosher food practice. So when the Romans start doing that, suddenly it's not as important to not eat that thing or do that thing because the practices have changed, right? Just a thought. At the same time, it's all about holiness. I like, and then I kept this one in just because it talks about poop. I like this one. Matthew 15, verse 16. And Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Are you still dumb on this topic? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Eliminated is a nice word for you eat it and you poop it. Right? That's the reality of what you put into your mouth. But those things which proceed from your mouth come from the heart. Those things defile you. For, what, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, and blasphemy. Those are the things that defile man. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile you. Right? That what had happened is the Pharisees had associated unclean and clean with sinful and not sinful. And Jesus was making that distinction again, right? This was supposed to be a symbolic system for priests to define themselves as righteous and holy, to live a lifestyle that would protect the Jewish people practically, but also set them apart spiritually. I think that's really neat. So you have an Old Testament way to nationally separate. And for the New Testament, there's a Holy Spirit separation. We should still be living separate. But in the new generation, we have to define what defiles us from what comes out of us. We have to actually practice in a way that the Holy Spirit is not torturing our conscience all the time, that we're doing the right thing because we're doing what the Holy Spirit tells us to do. So we're supposed to still, still be set aside for the kingdom. We're supposed to still be distinct, but if we want to go to a clam bake, we can't, right? But our mindset should still be distinct and clear. And Jesus made that really clear. It wasn't just abandon mosaic principles. It was keep or fulfill those principles. And Jesus said that over and over again. I did not come to destroy or to set aside the law. I came to fulfill it. So what was a temporary system of food eating is now a permanent system of spiritual consumption and eating. Walk divided, chew the cud, avoid nasty stuff, stay away from snakes, right? Those principles don't go away. They're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we go right into the next topic. But we're at 50 minutes already. This is like nine verses. Can I? Are we still good to tackle this one? Because then we get to leprosy next week, and we and there's two verses. It's amazing. Is there's one verse on kosher food, and there's one chapter, and there's two chapters on leprosy, right? So you get like how important is leprosy in his, history? And you think, wow, this is interesting. Why do we have so much a focus on leprosy? Um, 
and we'll sing the leprosy song if you know it, right? Or we'll get Steph to sing the leprosy song. It's to the tune of the Beatles yesterday, leprosy. I have pieces falling off of me. And that's just a taste. We'll, we'll give you more later. That's next week. Um, Leviticus 12, thanks for letting me get to it. I was just going to ask, like, maybe this is the first chapter we just skip. Because there is nothing in my spirit that wants to talk about baby making um, and, and that sort of thing. So let's get through this. Um, chapter 11 talks about connection to unclean through contacting things. Chapter 12 implies that you are unclean from the day you're born. And that system has to be baked into the Jewish understanding. The world says when you have a baby, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And we get these pictures, these nice gentle pictures from the Renaissance of mothers with little halos and soft white porcelain skin and this beautiful cherub of a baby that smiles and is happy. Any parent knows that's a lie. Kids do not come out like that. There are no soft effects on the picture photos. Babies cry and they're nasty and they spit things up and they poop things out and they are selfish and they are mean. Brothers and sisters will hit each other and step on each other. Grant literally stepped on Katie when she was an infant and thought it was awesome. And you're like, he's a sinner. Like he does not care about her life at all. And the reality is God wanted Jewish people to see it that way. And I think that's the best way to look at this. And Because people get really worked up about this chapter. And, and, and at the end of the day, you got two things going on in this chapter. Jewish people understand that when a kid's born, that's not clean, right? Not that it's sinful. Remember, there's a distinction here. At this point, it doesn't mean sinful. It just means you get a break because you just brought a sinner into the world, mom. You added to the total population of sinners, and that's not good. So we'll get into it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a woman has conceived and bore a child, a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. What? Because she just gave birth to a sinner. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. Customary impurity is a reference to menstruation. That's all I'm going to say. God ordains for moms. This is really artful. First time in the history of the world and in any culture that the religious system ordains that moms get a break after they make a baby, right? Egyptians did not give their moms a break after they made a baby. They had to go right back to the fields as soon as they could get up and stand. It was cruel and heartless. But God says, no, you make a baby, you have a customary period of time where you get a break, a, day of, a time of separation, right? Kids are good in the Bible. Um, you're supposed to multiply it. Genesis 128, Psalm 128, verse 3. Kids are a blessing. They're awesome. They add to the family. They're wonderful. But ritual for the Levites, there's a spiritual understanding here that that wonderful kid, that blessing to your family, is also going to come into the world as a sinner um, as it gets pointed out. And we'll get into that in a little bit. On the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskins shall be circumcised. So welcome to the world, little sinner. Um, you, you get seven days to, you know, breathe, and then we're going to cut you, and you're going to be circumcised. This allows the male children to enter into a confidential relationship really early in their life, right? This comes from Genesis 17:12. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and and, on, and uh, he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man, child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not thy seed. So if you have a male in your in your household and they're eight days old, they get circumcised. So that happened way back when. If you want to hear all the details on circumcision, go back and listen to the Genesis 17 podcast. We're going to get through this quicker. Uh, she she shall, shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. So seven days circumcised and then another 33 days or, or 32 days after the circumcision um, that you get to just have a break. She shall not touch any hallowed thing or come to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. You get to just stay at home, Mom, and you get to take a break. And if your husband wants to bother you, you have every right to say, no, 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 leave me alone and stay away, okay? But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as is her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. So for boys, you get 80 days of rest. For girls, you get... For boys, you get 40 days of rest. For girls, you get 80 days of rest. There are tons of theories about men and women that are born out of these sentences. I 
think I've, I think I went to nine or 10 different commentaries, right? Half of those commentaries just skip the topic. Like they don't touch it. Matthew Henry has like six lines and Matthew Henry is not known for being short in his commentaries. But on this particular chapter, he just doesn't say much. Why is the thing that you have to ask, why do boys get 40 days and girls get 80 days? So there's theories. I'm going to give you the theories. I am not convinced of any of them because the Bible doesn't say. At the end of the day, the reason why a lot of commentators don't get into this is because the Bible just doesn't give us a reason. We're supposed to just do it because God said to do it, right? Um, one theory, women are the ones who were deceived in the Garden of Eden. They are, therefore, more of a sinner than the guys. Does that make you, does that make your skin cringe a little bit? All right, here's another theory. Men getting circumcised on day eight, that circumcision and the covenantal relationship reduces the time of unclean because they are now accountable to God in some kind of way. That strikes me as infant baptism. I struggle with that one too. That's a weird one because I don't remember day eight, right? And most guys don't, right? It's not an age of accountability. Thank God, right? That was a bad day for all of us. Uh, one theory is that that circumcision is a form of punishment for the boy and then that debt is paid in part and therefore the time for the mom is reduced too. Um, perhaps, here's another theory, there's symbolism to this chapter that we have not been revealed yet that we don't know. Most of these things we can go to the New Testament and there's this clear connection because the New Testament people want us to see, look at this amazing connection. On this, nothing, not a peep. So, <laughs> After reviewing over 100 studies on children, what to expect claims that researchers conclude that even in infancy, girls are better at figuring out people's emotions than based on facial expressions. In fact, in one of those studies, given a rattle or a female face that's smiling to look at, the girls were, will more often look at the female face and the boys will more often pay attention to the rattle. Right? Girls showed more fine motor skills, a higher number of specific imitative gestures, responding faster to imitation even in the first days of childhood. So you can test this when you all start having babies, if you all start having babies. They are sinners. You have to think twice if you want to bring one to the world. Okay? New um, there are, I think this gives us a reality or something we can pull from this chapter. And, and this is just, not knowing what all this means, we can see two things. One, God does see a difference between boys and girls. And he, he makes that difference marked and there are different rules for boys and for girls. Second thing we know from this, God only sees boys and girls. And this is kind of a hot button issue right now. There aren't 20 different genders outlined in this. And we just got done with chapter 11. God knows how to go through very distinct things with the animal kingdom, right? If there are more than boys and girls, God might have mentioned that. God does not. So it's very, it, in this passage, we can draw or deduce those two things without having to go very far into other stuff. Right? In this chapter, then, unclean is something that comes internally. These kids are implied here is that there is an unclean state at the age of babiness. That's a tough concept. And most religions don't see it. They see innocence in children. And in Judaism, we don't see innocence in children. We see an uncleanness in children that flips our understanding of childhood on its head. But the spiritual image is very clear that, the, that we see this conflation here that there is something unclean about kids. Later, it gets conflated into sin, and I'm going to show you that now. If you go to Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth, birthed in iniquity, and in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innerward parts, and in the hidden parts, you will make me to know wisdom. David believes at that point that he's a sinner at the day of birth, right? You're not innocent till the age of accountability. You're actually a sinner till the age of accountability. Well, then what do you do if a kid dies at age one? Do they go to hell? And the answer to that is, no, idiot. God knows how to make judgment calls. And God's a big God, and he knows how to figure that out. And he knows how to deal with that person directly, where that person's actions in the world may or may not be something they're accountable for when they stand before God. God can deal with their spirit. But the basic belief is when I came into the world, there was 10.5 pounds of sinner in my mom's arms. And that's the Jewish belief. 
Paul represents the Jewish people believed this and believed Adam's sin was conveyed through birth from father to son, from mother to daughter, all the way through time. Romans 5.12, Wherefore, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Because one person disobeyed God, Romans 5.19, because one person disobeyed God, many people became sinners. But because one other person person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Because Mary was a virgin birth, the sin of the father did not pass to the son. Right? So in that sense, Paul is making a real claim here about the nature of what's going on. Verse 6, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or daughter, she shall bring the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, a young pigeon or turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. And this is the law for who has, who, for her who has born a male or a female. It doesn't matter if it's male or female to the mom, but the mom's going to do this as though she did something wrong by bringing the sinner into the world. This is a tough concept to put your head around and to accept right? Um, and it's even harder to want to teach it and then have people get all upset because you did said something the wrong way. But I'm, I'm doing my best and I'm trying to honor the passage. Uh, so there's an awareness of this kind of Jewish sin. Healthy people don't need doctors. Sick people do. Jesus said that. I've come to call out those who think they're righteous, but they know, but those who know that they are sinners. It's the knowledge of being a sinner that's the first step towards salvation. You don't think you're a sinner. You don't buy into this idea that you were born a sinner. Uh, then you can come up with every justification you want, right? The highest self-esteem population in our country are prisoners because they love what they've done and they justify what they've done. We're good at that as human beings. But people who are counted righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God, God forgives them, right? That's Romans 4, 5. And if she, back to our chapter, verse 8, and if she's not able to bring a lamb... She can bring two turtle loves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering, the other is a sin offering. <coughs> Excuse me. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. <clears throat> that verse eight's a super cool verse because when we see Joseph and Mary and we look at what, you know, when they came in in Luke 2, verse 22, when the days of purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, what we just read, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, hey, we just read that, chapter 12. Every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer the sacrifice according to which was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So that's that passage. Really, the only other place in the Bible that we see that getting accomplished is with Joseph and Mary. And it tells us that Joseph and Mary were dirt poor. They were in total poverty because when you brought a child into the world, that was kind of a celebration. When you brought the sacrifice, it was kind of how the Jewish people would celebrate the new baby, right? It's a sinner. We get that. Hey, congratulations. You got a new kid. And it was kind of this thing because when that atonement and sin offering were given, then you'd have a celebration and you'd feast with your family and you'd do that. So when Joseph and Mary bring the turtle doves and the two young pigeons, that's because they just don't have the money to do anything else. It's really the only other reference to it. That implies, by the way, that Mary willingly brought an offering to the temple for her atonement and for the sin of bringing a sinner into the world, in which case Mary admitted she was a sinner. That's not very Catholic, right? And the Catholics don't like that particular verse, but that's how that works. So we'll get to that later. Um, again, I'm just going to come back to like that question of, okay, why half the time for guys that there are for girls? There's no real answer to that, and the Bible doesn't give any real answer. And even in rabbinic tradition, I talked to my Jewish friend on this one, and he goes, you know, it's funny, the rabbinic tradition just doesn't touch it, right? They just, nobody even takes a shot at this, because the Bible, nowhere else in the Bible does it really reference it, other than that passage I just read you with Joseph and Mary. Because that's what's important to God here, is this concept of atonement and sin, and this idea that uncleanness is who we are when we're born, Right? and that that's something that needs to get de dealt with. And when that gets conflated with sin later on, then that happens. So the sin here isn't being the kid. The sin is this idea that you get some time away. And frankly, my own take on this is, I think it's beautiful that God takes this much attention and time and says, you know what, when you go through the trouble of making a baby, you get some maternity leave. 
So it's really the first recorded, documented rule in a society where women got time off. And God could just respect that, and you get time away. And then, of course, my own thought, no offense, Grant, but when you have a baby girl, you get more maternity leave because baby girls are just precious. And you deserve a little prize. You get more time off of the baby girl. But that's my own take on it. That's not biblical in any way, shape, or form. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you. Uh, we thank you for your word, even when it's tough to hear, Lord, even when there's concepts that, that fly in the face of our culture and how we were raised and what we're taught to believe. Lord, help us to just be holy because you're holy and to serve you because you've asked us to serve you. Lord, help us to use judgment and understand the difference between mosaic systems, which were temporary, and the permanent system of, of what you've called us to do in your, in your law and in your love. Help us to read your words, Lord, and understand and, and to not be ignorant of what you've said, um, to know that there's spiritual principles here that have not gone away, that living distinct and living different is important to you. Uh, it's a form of worship, and it's a way that we can set ourselves apart. Lord, when we eat in such a way that honors you, uh, when we honor you in childbirth and as a family, we honor mothers that make children and give them time off. Uh, Lord, help us to just do those things because you've told us to do those things and you've told us to honor and respect and make decisions and live in a way that's divided from this world to live set apart help us lord to you know i just love the idea that we are all in for you uh, and we give everything we have to you and we we live for you and we serve you not when it's convenient and easy but especially when it's hard and difficult and challenging um, that we can be people that serve you and, and the people we know in our lives know that and they know 100 percent that we honor you with our lives in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pause. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.